Welcome to the Burnout Recovery Podcast, a guiding resource dedicated to healthcare professionals on their journey to overcoming burnout. Spearheaded by Dr. Joe Braid, a certified professional coach and rehabilitation physician. This podcast offers practical strategies through expert interviews and personal resilience stories, providing invaluable tools for navigating professional challenges while prioritizing well-being. Regardless of your role in healthcare, this podcast acknowledges the toll of your work on your overall health and is committed to supporting your recovery from burnout and fostering a fulfilling, sustainable career. So, if you're ready to begin a transformative journey, join us for each new episode. Together, we'll navigate challenges, celebrate successes, and build a supportive community of healthcare professionals. Hello and welcome back to the Burnout Recovery Podcast. I am delighted today to bring Dr. Sarah McKay, a neuroscientist based in Sydney, onto the podcast to share her wisdom around the human brain and share with us her recent book that has just been put into the shops. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? Oh, I'm great, Joe. Thank you for having me here. So I came across Sarah through the Neuroscience Coaching Network, which is like an online collaborative space that she runs with Mary Collins, who is her sister-in-law based in Dublin. <laughs> and this duo are really dynamic, really involved creating these great spaces where we would connect weekly, learn about how to bring neuroscience into our coaching professions. And then we have had some great guest speakers also from around the world. And we're wrapping up now with our presentations that we've created as small triads or groups of three or four. Sarah, I'd love to just do a little intro. First of all, you're originally from New Zealand, but you live Mm -hmm. here in Australia now. Um, You're a neuroscientist, a speaker, an author, a media personality, and a founder of Think Brain and the Neuroscience Academy Suite of training programs. You're a mum to two boys, a sailor, a botanical artist, and an ocean swimmer. Sarah explains the brain to help professionals so they can coach brain owners in a way that promotes real change and inspires positive action. So good to have you here. Oh, thank you. That's a nice intro. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I've got a few different questions I'd love to just sort of talk through with you today. Let's Mm. talk about debunking the lizard brain. In the course, you were very much like, "Mm -mm, there's no reptiles hanging out in our human brains. Tell me more about Um, that concept, please. Oh, gosh. Well, I don't know about you, Joe, during your medical school training, but I suspect you probably didn't learn about the lizard brain. (laughs) And I (laughs) had never heard, you know, all through my neuroscience training, years of research, the lizard brain never came up. It's not an end in neuroscience textbook. And it was only once I sort of started doing neuroscience education and started talking to coaches and therapists and some psychologists, they started talking back to me about the lizard brain as if this was some sort of neuroscientific, neuroanatomical um, fact. Mm. <laughs> and I was initially a bit confused because I'd never come across it before in all my in all my years of work Yes, and delved into sort of this idea. And it emerged from um, this chap back in the 1960s, Paul McLean, who was also a believer of phrenology that you can look at someone's skull facial structure and determine their personality. So he wasn't necessarily very accurate in his application (laughs) of ideas. Um, And he came up with this idea of the triune brain that sort of based on the idea that our brains develop in the same way that they evolved Mm -hmm. um, and that we sort of share based on our, you know, sort of our evolutionary past, we share the same brain structures as lizards. 
that has been, in terms of the evolution, that's been debunked because we now understand that we are not um, – we are not the offspring. We're not like the the great 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 grandchildren of lizards. Mm-hmm. They're more like far distant, unrelated cousins. We evolved from the same ancestor. We didn't yes. evolve from them. So we're entirely evolutionarily unrelated to lizards. Mm. How the idea gets applied then is more in this kind of shorthand phrase where people discuss perhaps um some people use it to refer to instincts. Mm-hmm. Some people use it to refer to emotional responses. Almost any action that we have as humans that isn't thoughtful or calm or measured, that is said to emerge from our lizard brain. And the original anatomical description of the lizard brain, Paul McLean referred to that as the, the lizard brain was the brain stem, that kind of part of the brain that's involved mm. with, you know, heart rate and breathing and, you know, the, the, the sort of basics of our physiology and then sitting a, uh, sort of on top of that, he said we have the emotion centers of our brain, the amygdala, the limbic system, et cetera. Hmm. He called that the mammalian brain and then sitting on top of that, there's the kind of like the very human um, neo-mammalian brain, which would be our cortex. Yeah. <clears throat> What's the, the thing that's kind of, again, people trip up on, if they are using it, they usually use it to refer to the amygdala and the um, yes, the limbic system, which is not, well. yes. which is not what he actually referred to oh, as the lizard brain in the first gosh. place. So, if they are believing that they are referring back to Paul McLean's original description of the triumph mm. brain, they're actually even getting that part wrong. Right. Um, and what's very funny is you can go into something like Google Images and put down, put in lizard brain or reptilian brain, and get a set of. Um, what apparently look like to the untrained eye, very accurate neuroanatomical diagrams with lines or labels pointing towards the so-called reptilian brain or lizard mm-hmm. brain. And I have seen it pointed to everything in the brain from the auditory cortex to the spinal cord, to the brainstem, to the cerebellum, the hypothalamus, the thalamus, the almost, almost every part of the brain, perhaps except for the prefrontal cortex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so people don't know where it is. And mm. the reason they don't know where it is is because it doesn't exist. Mm. So mm. we now have a far, far more sophisticated understanding of how our thoughts and feelings and behaviours emerge as part of neural networks and communication and brains doing what brains do. Yeah. Um, we understand whilst we may be born with a couple of, you know, a, f- a few basic sort of instincts and in that we <laughs> continue to breathe. <laughs> you know, we've got that, you know, our, our nervous system is, is able to control and regulate our body to a certain extent when we're mm-hmm. born. Mm-hmm. We're not born with these sort of ins- lizard-like um, responses and that every human in the entire planet will grow up wherever they are to respond to the same event in exactly the same way. doesn't matter whether you're a lizard in Australia or a lizard in Canada or a lizard in, you know, Mongolia, you're going to respond the same way to a threat. Mm. But a human is not going to respond to the same way in a threat because our brains determine our behaviours based on a whole host of things, including our our, our lived experiences, et cetera. So, I mean, from a neuroscience perspective, it makes no sense from an evolutionary perspective, it makes no sense. But I think people like it because it seems simple and explanatory mm-hmm. in terms of um, when we are scared, <laughs> we may behave in a few different ways. But we're not all scared of the same thing and we don't all yeah. respond in the same ways to a threat or a challenge faced. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, well explained. Oh, it's, a, it's a red flag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I call it a red flag. That's a bit mean. It shouldn't be. It's not a red flag. 
the its use is a sign of um, poor neuroscience literacy, mm. and that's not the user's fault. That's mm. typically the people that have taught them the neuroscience were not neuroscientists. Sure. If yeah. you're a neuroscientist, you wouldn't teach lizard brain. Yep. Yep. Got it. I think you said that in about week one, and I was yeah. listening <laughs> intently. Um, <laughs> Let's segue into the biopsychosocial model that you use, mm. which you were starting to, I could hear you were dropping a few little gems about that with the uh, top-down, outside-in, bottom-up model. So <laughs> in rehabilitation medicine, we definitely do talk about the biopsychosocial mm. um, like approach of treating the whole individual. Mm. Um, would, you, would you like to sort of um, explain it maybe in your words, how you yeah. um, are talking about those human experiences that we have that are part of the influence in how we react to a situation. Yeah, so I, I started teaching this model a few years ago now and it's proven to, it, it, it helps pe give people a framework hmm. to think about the brain and nervous system and all of the various influences and factors which determine who we are, how we behave, how we end up in a certain perhaps state, mm -hmm. disease, risk, treatment, et cetera. And it's based on the biopsychosocial model, but it's very more mechanistic than that. And it puts the brain and the nervous system in the middle mm -hmm. and almost gives us kind of, especially if people haven't been trained in physiology or health or medicine, it gives mm -hmm. them a, a simple visual framework to to ask questions and to break down the many complex factors. So I talk about bottom-up biology, so the brain's receiving constant streams of data mm -hmm. from our biology. Um, and and by, by information, I, I would also include within that, like it's sort of a genes, hormones, yes. immune system. Mm -hmm. But there's also the interoceptive signals our brain is receiving, those signals that we're aware of. Perhaps I've got a sore back or a full belly or a full bladder or I need to eat. Mm -hmm. But then all of the signals that we have no no, no, no um, awareness of your gut pH or you yeah. know, the level of your T cells. Who knows what they are? We, we, mm. But your brain will be receiving information about that and is in constant conversation with our body, regulating those 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 signals. Sure. So, the, but that's not they're, they're not the only signals the brain's receiving. There's a constant stream of data coming from the outside world. So that is yes. outside in mm. that makes its way. It doesn't make its way in by magic. It makes its way in through our senses. So a lot of that is what we perceive, what we see in the world around us, because we're humans. We're primarily visual animals in terms of the, the, the sort of the senses we, we we receive and make meaning of. And that could be, you know, other people, their faces, mm. you know, reading up someone else's emotions by seeing who they are, yes. the environment we're in. I can see I'm in my office, in my home, the rising and the setting of the sun, the environment. Mm. So most, a lot of what we see, but also what we hear and if something's close enough to us, what we see and smell and taste. Sure. Um, and we also... Rather more recent and rather more recent times, perhaps the last few decades, mm -hmm. we're also receiving a constant stream of data about what is not in our immediate environment. The news feeds that are constantly mm -hmm. making our way into our brains and our nervous systems about what's happening in the Ukraine or, you know, COVID news. Mm. Um, that wasn't in our immediate environment, but we receive that. We receive that too from the outside. And, and then because we're humans, we've got this peculiar, the biopsychosocial model would call it psychology, mm -hmm. top down. We could call that the mind. And that would mm -hmm. include thoughts and feelings and expectations, beliefs, previous experiences. It's a bit more kind of fuzzy around the edges what that means, but essentially 
um, that can influence brain function. Mm-hmm. An expectation can influence a perception. Um, a, a thought can change what's happening in our body, mm-hmm. you know, and pregnancy and motherhood are a great example of that because you could, once breastfeeding is established, you can think about your baby and then you get let milk let down mm-hmm. even if the baby's not there. Sure. Um, and outs, you know, social support networks are really important for determining mood. You know, you mm. you have a lower risk of depression if you've got a good strong outside and social support network. Yes. So they all interact via the nervous system. Yeah. Essentially, it gives yeah. people this sort of visual framework almost to then start teasing out. Oh, I have insomnia. Um, what might be some treatments for that? What are some mm. bottom up? And what are some outside in? And what are some top down? Yeah. Rather than getting them all muddled up. Sure. Mm. To separate them out as the three yeah. sort of areas yeah, yeah, to yeah. look at. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, let's see if we can turn that into an example around burnout for mm. my audience that we have here as well. So, I mean, certainly people in burnout often have sleeping issues as well. Mm. Um, that can that can be a problem for a, a multitude of reasons. I would often mm. say it can be um, due to thoughts and sort of yeah. trying to trying to draw a line on the rumination or the that sort of anxious feeling that people have or the dread going into the next day? Yeah, so sleep problems, put that in the middle of the model. Sure, yeah. So I'm having trouble falling asleep, Mm -hmm. be really specific. Yes. So like you say, top down, that's that's that rumination, that's the the thoughts. (laughs) But you could also perhaps be thinking about, well, what's happening from the outside in Mm -hmm. that is, you know, enabling or, or, or causing me trouble falling asleep or could I think about outside in as a way of helping me sleep better so that would yes. be that those sort of basics of sleep hygiene mm. have you got a dark cool room are you leaving your phone up you know sure. downstairs in the kitchen um have you got you a know, sleep are routine you, or an evening routine? have you got a sleep routine yeah. yeah the rising and the setting of the sun if you're mm. a shift worker yeah you're doing night shift you know you're outside in regulation of you know your 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 sort of diurnal rhythm mm. is is going to be all up the whack. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. recognizing that that could be a, an enormous contributor, particularly if you do shift work. You know, you're doing nights one week and not the next. Sure. Um, and then there's, the, there's then there's your bottom up. So it could be something as simple, um, although this would probably occur to most people. Am I drinking coffee too late in the day? Sure. Um, yeah. Am I take? Am I getting enough physical exercise so that my body actually is weary? Mm. physically weary when I'm going to bed, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So you, you can use that model. Late at night, yeah. that sort of thing, I think. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So you can use that that model as a way of sort of troubleshooting mm. um, and then perhaps choose one factor from each. Well, you know, yeah. it's best to choose where's, where's the biggest bang for your buck, yes. which is mm. going to give you the greatest shift. But mm. it enables you to then separate out some ideas. Yeah. And then troubleshoot. Sure. And I love this sort of experimenting, sort of be your own scientist approach of like, okay, mm. I don't know which answer is going to give the the best result, but I'm ready to try X out for a whole week, see if that mm-hmm. starts making a difference. Evaluate mm, that. Mm, oh, mm. no, that didn't make as much of a change as I thought. And then what yeah. might I do yeah. another week? Yeah, and like and like any scientific experiment, if you do them all at once, you won't know which variable. One hundred percent. You know, you, yeah. you can't kind of you can't kind of identify what made the difference. Yes. So, I mean, perhaps if you're the circumstances are desperate, you try you try them all. If it works, that's great. Sure. But it, de- it probably depends 
the level to which you want to take that sort of self-experimentation yeah. and optimization. I think someone in burnout perhaps needs to be a bit kinder on themselves mm. and try it all. You know, the I call them the dude bros in Silicon Valley who are all into the self-optimization, who are probably not suffering from burnout mm. in the healthcare system. Mm. <laughs> They've got the space to tweak one variable at a time. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it but, depends on where you're coming from and the yeah. I would also encourage clients to start with sort of a a lower, smaller, more manageable goal or more manageable mm. approach to take rather than they're they're in overwhelm often. So Yeah. Um, yeah. You don't want to put something else in their to do list. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Mm. Okay. So um Let's talk a little bit around, um, you know, burnout and that sort of mm. loss of empathy that can come along mm. with um, with the other symptoms that we've got. So we've definitely got emotional exhaustion. There can be that cynicism around your workplace or your caregiver role. Um, there may be some cognitive dysfunction. People often talk about mm. a bit of brain fog. And then mm -hmm. that kind of insularity as well. Um, so what I'd, what I'd love to nut into now is a bit more about that work around empathy that um, mm. you talk about in your um, your Baby Brain book. Can you just give mm. us the name of your book again, please? It's called Baby Brain, yes. The Surprising Neuroscience of How Pregnancy and Motherhood Sculpt Our Brains and Change Our Minds for the Better. Mm, <laughs> and essentially great. what I'm trying to do is have a, have a strengths-based focus. Yeah. Um, to use coach language, a strengths-based focus on the neuroscience of pregnancy and motherhood because so often when it comes to um, you think about females and brains mm -hmm. and then you add in reproductive function it's almost as if it absolutely equals cognitive dysfunction and emotional instability it's almost as if those three couldn't possibly come together in any positive way and mother nature didn't have the intention of us to become more stupid mm -hmm. when, we, when we cycle through these various phases of, of, of you know um, reproductive capacity, whether that be from puberty through to menopause and certainly with motherhood, I don't think there would be much benefit of having stupid mothers no, sure. <laughs> caring for new babies. Yeah. Um, so I was try I'm, I'm kind of looking at the upsides of all of the brain changes that take place, which is essentially what the neuroscience is showing. It mm -hmm. just seems to kind of clash a little with the certainly the colloquial stories women tell themselves about yes. their brains after motherhood. Rather yeah. Pregnancy. Yeah. So, sort of the mm. majority. I remember some stats you were sharing that sort of the majority of people polled might say that they didn't feel their con cognitive reserve or their mm. um, ability to problem solve or troubleshoot was as good. Yeah. But there was definitely a percentage of people that said, "No, I was still going well, or I was going better yeah. than before." Yeah. Yeah. So it's about eighty percent of women will say, "I have baby brain," mm. as defined by. Um, I, I feel not as cognitively able as I used to. I'm forgetful, I'm foggy, I'm fuzzy. I can't kind of complete the tasks I'm on. And they, they say that they experience that during pregnancy and then also during early motherhood. Although mm -hmm. sometimes I'll even get a grandmother saying to me, oh, I still have baby brain. And yeah, I said, right. oh, no. <laughs> um, and then 20% of, of women don't. Certainly in my, in my experiences of talking about baby brain yes. um, in the media in the last few weeks, I think the 20% entirely encapsulates all of the female journalists within the ABC here in Australia because they're all like, I didn't have baby brain. How dare anyone suggest otherwise? And I guess I'm kind of a bit more like that because I didn't have it either. Yeah. Um, but I also didn't know it was a thing. I, I, oh. It was invented when I had my children. I'd never heard yes. of it. 
Okay. Um, it didn't, it, and so it wasn't part of my expectation. Mm. And so what's interesting is if we bring these 80% of women in, whether they're pregnant or in early motherhood, throw all of the cognitive battery of tests at them that we can. Mm-hmm. We very, we don't, we're not picking up cognitive decline. We're not picking up forgetfulness. It's the certainly the objective measures aren't matching the subjective reports. Yes. There is in some women, in some studies, some of the time, so there's a tiny subset in the third trimester of pregnancy, we might pick up perhaps a point or so less on a test of numerical memory or verbal Hmm. memory or something, you know, one of those, but 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 not not across the board. No, and at the same time, other studies have found enhanced memory in that third trimester of pregnancy. Okay. So we've got that conundrum. And so there's a number of explanations for that. So one might be, or one of the suggested ideas is this, just the overarching idea of well-being. Women who report lower well-being mm. in early motherhood, perhaps they have anxiety or depression. Mm. Perhaps they're you know they're lacking sleep. Who isn't? Sure. Um, but that but they are finding that a difficult thing to cope with. They're lacking social support. Overall, well, if they experience poor well-being, mm-hmm. they're also more likely to report. I have baby brain even Uh if they're testing even if we say hey but your test scores don't show that so there's that correlation there between your perception of how you are coping overall Mm -hmm. and your perception of baby brain there's the the other idea is kind of the mental load of motherhood the you know the the emotional load that women take on sure and i think Mm -hmm. tied into this is this idea of the super mom i mean Mm. the super mom who does it all Yes. And I think it suits society to have super mums because then we don't need to help them because she can just do everything. Yeah, yeah. And then if she forgets one little thing once, she goes, oh, it's baby brain. It's my cognitive dysfunction because she's absorbed these ideas throughout mm. her lifespan that having a female body and brain and then reproducing will just cause cognitive decline and emotional yeah. instability. So that it kind of suits everyone if she internalizes that and blames some sort of neurological deficit mm. when actually it's perhaps just the overload of trying to do sure. everything all at once yeah what you remember depends on what you pay attention to yes and your brain has been sculpted by pregnancy to hone on in and, and tune in to your baby mm. to this this newborn that's sort yeah. of mother nature's intention that as our focus has shifted towards there. So you can't remember your emails. Sure. You can't remember everything on your grocery list because suddenly, yes. <laughs> you know, your, your, your biological focus is elsewhere. Mm. So I, I think <laughs> from my analysis of the literature and just talking about this, that baby brain is a shorthand phrase that we use to describe feeling overwhelmed and not being able to do it all Mm -hmm. and we've been led to believe that it is a neurological deficit and therefore we can internalize that versus Mm. it really being a social issue of lack of lack of sort of support not being able to do it all yeah 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 the village Mm. so that's sort of where i i I sit on that and then i suppose that to link back to the empathy Mm. um the changes that we see that do take place during pregnancy, and we now have evidence that they are due to primarily estradiol, so one of the mm-hmm. types of estrogen mm-hmm. released at you know, thousand-fold levels in, in, in uh, pregnancy, um, that they shape and sculpt the social cognition regions of the brain, primarily networks involved with empathy, so mm-hmm. thinking about what other people are thinking and yes. feeling, theory of mind, those, those kinds of perceptions that we have 
of other people's needs and wants and thoughts being separate from our own. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And social cognition, so reading social cues, um, and that is really reading the social cues of this new little baby sure. that we suddenly, uh, you know, we, we, we are biologically primed to tune into them, to read mm-hmm. their you know, their, their body language, their facial responses, to listen to their cries. Sure. Because <clears throat> they're the only cute babies can't tell us what they need. Yeah. We have to learn to tune into them. Mm. And so the empathy and the theory of mind is an enormous part of that. And those networks have been primed by pregnancy to be more flexible and responsive and efficient mm. to focus in on the baby. So it's interesting um, if we then dis- we, we see the neurological underpinnings of empathy change mm-hmm. um, and then how does that play out in terms of how new mothers respond to children and then can does that mean a father or the non-birth mother doesn't have empathy? It's mm-hmm. just kind of different. Um, there's, there's something different going on in there. So empathy is not just this trait we're born with. Yeah. <laughs> there's something that can emerge and develop and be refined. Yes, yeah, experience. Sure. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then I would say that let's tie this into the burnout scenario mm. as well. I mean, most of the people that um, I coach in recovering from burnout are generally mums, top mm. end of their game, high achieving, high expectations of themselves. I'm I sure wouldn't they... know about that. <laughs> 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 they don't sound familiar to me at all. <laughs> and and I, I'm sure they're they're in healthcare. They're very compassionate and caring for their uh, patients. But there is a stage when they see the distance mm. that's sort of coming away from. We'll, we'll keep it in healthcare if we can, rather than with mm-hmm. babies. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that distance starts growing there, and the mm-hmm. empathy drops away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I see with with like the program that I run that it starts to come back into their life again. Yeah. Uh, with time, with I, I guess mindset work and um, and the tools and the strategies that I use, let's talk about that sort of the losing empathy and then regaining mm. it again. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I I was saying to you before we came mm. on, I was having yeah. a debate with some friends recently about whether empathy is a trait that we are born with and mm. is an innate skill. And I suppose there are perhaps some people who I mean, I, I even look at my children. One of them feels very deeply other people's feelings and the mm. other one I don't think he knows other people have feelings. Okay. He's very aware yeah, of his right. own. Yeah. So there is there is a difference there between my two children, which is kind of curious. And the one with the what what I would say is deep empathy when he was much younger he used to say people have a bulb around them. Mm. And when you get close to their bulb, you can feel what they're feeling. And mm. I thought, gosh, that's really interesting. Wow. So he yeah. he has got something within him um, and his sort of brain wiring that makes him quite sensitive to other people. Mm. He cries in movies, et cetera. The other one, I don't know, it's just he's his own man, you know, Mr. Independent. Just what, what's their birth order? His way through. Uh, the old, the, there's only 18 months difference between the two mm-hmm. of them. So the younger one is the one with, um, with, with, with the empathy. He's yeah. just a really soft, soft hearted yeah. soul. Mm-hmm. The other guy just does his own. Mr. We call him our flatmate. Yeah. Comes and goes. <laughs> but, um, so, you know, I was kind of thinking, well, there must, there's, there's, we haven't taught them in any different way. No. These, the, these empathy, and especially the young one is, he's quite an extraordinary guy with, with that. But no. as interesting as he's getting older now, 
it's almost as if he's unlearning that in a way and it's interesting how is that being socialised out mm. of him or does he not talk about it in the same way, particularly within groups of his friends. But then if he's at home where it's safe and secure and we were to watch a movie, we watched Forrest Gump mm-hmm. a couple of months ago and we had to stop halfway through because he said the emotional roller coaster was just too much for him. Yeah, right. Um, right. So, you know, it's – so maybe there is, there is a there is a trait in there. It's, it is – more innate to him but does that mean that we all couldn't learn to think about what other people are thinking and to think about what other people are feeling certainly it's important because we see the emergence of it almost to an extreme during pregnancy and early motherhood Mm. Um, and there are you know I I think it's one one idea that I have (laughs) um, around um, how, how it relates to burnout is this concept that it's really cognitively demanding. It's quite energetically demanding to be constantly thinking about what someone else mm. needs and wants. Yes. And mm. it's very demanding as a mother, even when your brain has changed to enable you to do that. Yes. Um, it is always energetically demanding. And mm. if we are in these sort of states of burnout where energy is low and we perhaps we don't have that same um, energetic contribution to a really highly cognitively demanding task mm-hmm. such as empathy. Yes. Because empathy is just not a feeling. It can also be a cognitive skill that we can develop. Yeah. And that's possibly why that is lost because in that state of burnout, we simply don't have the energy to give mm. to someone else. Yeah, right. <laughs> We're barely kind of getting by ourselves. Yeah. So um, yeah. it's almost as if we kind of go back to the, you know, you kind of turn inward again. Mm. And just focus in on your on on self, yes, versus yeah. all, all, all of the others out there. So, yeah. and we know that interacting socially with other people, constantly engaging and and, and interacting with other people, is highly cognitively demanding. But it's also in a in a good way, yeah, because we know that people who are more socially engaged mm. um, have greater cognitive and neural brain res- reserve yeah. as they get older. It's so it kind of, it's almost like lifting weights. Yes. <laughs> um, so it, it, perhaps it's not as a, su- a surprise to me when you are in a state of sort of nervous system mm. hypervigilance or overwhelm where you need sure. to kind of dial back that that's lost. Yes, yes. Mm. Yeah. And I think there's something aligned in there with the psychological safety as well. Like your son For sure, feels yeah. more safe at home with the the family and, and watching a movie in that safe space that he knows, whereas if he's kind mm. of standing up on his own out with the tribe. Out with- <laughs> he's out in high school, you know, the first two years of high school for a, a boy, yeah, you know, going through puberty. It's mm. a vulnerable time. So you, you go into self-protection mode and you learn, <laughs> you know, the, you learn what is socially acceptable to say. Mm. Um, and what's and what's not, even though we would like to think it's socially acceptable to acknowledge other people's emotions when you're yeah. a 13-year-old boy, perhaps it's not. Yeah. Mm. And so you kind of dial that back and, I, and it only kind of comes out in, in, in certain situations. So I think the psychological safety is part of that. And perhaps when people are experiencing burnout as well, I mean, that's the same. You, you need to protect yourself. Yeah. So you can't put others first. Yes. And... Yeah, I agree with that. And I Mm. think that sometimes the workplaces are not psychologically safe. So Mm. you might not show up with so much empathy for colleagues. We we know people Mm. sort of can be more reactionary with their emotions Mm. and that, and also to patients as well. So I, Mm. I do think some of the system approaches for burnout 
addressing burnout are to make sure there are some uh, support for psychologically safe spaces there. Yeah, for mm. sure, for yeah. sure. Great. Well, look, we're wrapping up now, Sarah. This has been a really fascinating, interesting talk for um, mm. the audience. Thank you for everything you've shared. Let's finish up That's with... Right. We've covered lots of ground, yeah, haven't we? We've kind absolutely. of roamed, roamed yeah. around the brain. It's yeah. it's fun. I love it. Yeah, thank you. Um, mm. Would you like to share with my audience one sort of self-care uh, strategy tool, something that you do for yourself on the regular that really keeps mm. you humming along with these different um, realms that you are involved in? Mm, oh, sleep. Sleep, <laughs> sleep's, yeah. Sleep's uh -huh. my superpower, and I know mm. that's perhaps there's nothing new under the sun, but um, anyone who knows me as well will know that. Even the dog knows not to come <laughs> near me in the bed. He goes okay. to my husband's. He goes to my husband's side if he needs help. <laughs> so yeah, I I have always been a really good sleeper. I grew up in a family where sleep was protected where sleep was important i was mm. sent to bed early as a kid my mum went to bed early mm. um, i've always loved going to bed i still yes. do there was perhaps you know my late teens early 20s when i managed to stay up until 4 a.m out in the town <laughs> couldn't do that now i'm getting up sure. at 4 a.m yeah but um for me i i don't even like working after 5 p.m at night mm. because it disrupts that whole evening kind of wind down that i have so i absolutely yeah. protect sleep um, almost above and beyond anything else. And I also mm. nap quite regularly. Of course, I'm not, you know, an emergency doctor or heading up, you know, intensive care or a surgeon, so mm. I kind of can nap mm. in the afternoons if, if I feel that need. Sure. Um, and I've always done that, but I, I have, have a short strategic nap. Um, and interestingly, I speak to people who also, like me, are strategic nappers. Yeah. Um, and that will set our alarms and we kind of, know what we're doing and why and do yeah. it for a short specific reason um what's your magic and, number and we of all minutes around oh, that 23 i 23? set my alarm for 23 I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um just enough to kind of you know just sort of clear 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 everything off the receptors and mm. sort of dial everything back up yeah um but People who are strategic nappers are usually very good night sleepers and i suspect a large part of that is the top down mm -hmm. um just we love sleep we lean into sleep we are we are we we are very good at kind of giving over to sleep and enjoying it mm. um and i think this similarly at night because i know a lot of people who have sleep issues go to bed and go oh my god and they yes. and they don't like just indulge and kind of lean and fall into that whereas strategic nappers have already done it once that day so they're quite good at doing it again I see, and yeah. most strategic nappers are good night sleepers as well mm. so that's my magic Great. It's not a magic trick. It's just what I, it's my non-negotiable. Sure. And it works and consistently it keeps working for you. Mm -hmm. Great. Fingers crossed it carries on. I'm Good. getting to ages when apparently it won't. We'll see. <laughs> well, let's see. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Great. Well, please share with my audience where people can find your book, find out more about what you do in the world. Yeah, sure. I mean, my website's probably the best, Dr. Sarah Mackay, S-A-R-A-H-M-C-K-A-Y.com. And you can find links to books and courses and newsletters, all of this, this sort of usual blog posts, et cetera, Instagram links, sure. all, that, all that's there. That's great. We'll put those in the show notes as well. Sarah, it's been an absolute delight having you on the podcast today. Thanks so much for everything you've shared and I'll see you again soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Burnout Recovery Podcast. If there's someone in your world who would also benefit from this, please share it with them. 
Remember, you're not alone and there is hope for a brighter, more fulfilling future. Let's continue this journey together one episode at a time. For more resources, including how to move from dread to delight, head to drjoebraid.com.